What is the goal of a farewell tour? You know what a farewell tour is, right? Somebody's announced that perhaps they're ending their career and maybe the last year of it is spent going on a, a tour of sorts. So uh, a few years back, right, Derek Jeter announced he was going to be retiring from baseball. He spent the last year going throughout the stadiums and he received the accolades. Same with Kobe Bryant. He announced he was retiring from basketball. And so as he went through it his final year, right, he received all the applause and the appreciation of the fans. Um, Mike Krzyzewski, uh, coach of the men's uh, basketball team at uh, Duke, he's on his farewell tour, so to speak. Uh, Elton John, did you know, is on his farewell tour, I think for the second time since he had one already uh, in, the, in the 90s. Anyways, what's the goal? So for, for athletes, maybe it's to receive the, the accolades, the appreciation of fan, fans. Maybe for artists, it's to uh, communicate their thanks and connect one last time. Well, what's the goal of a farewell tour? Are, are all farewell tours like that? Well, some are, are more sobering and some have different purposes. And that's what we see taking place really in the farewell tour of the Apostle Paul, which we begin this morning as we study Acts chapter 20. Here in, in Acts 20, Paul he begins to make his way to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's going to encourage believers, but he's also going to deliver a, a sermon, a very long sermon, and a very solemn address to the elders in Ephesus. And part of Paul's purpose of going on this farewell tour is to instruct those men and women, those churches, on how to carry on the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ when he's gone from the scene. So there is, is much that we can learn from this passage together this morning about how we are called to carry on the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 20. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe you can find the passage on page 929. As you know, uh, as I've said over and over again in the course of our study in the book of Acts, the book of Acts, it chronicles the ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ uh, through his disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and in Acts, uh, Luke's aim, the, the author of Acts, Luke, is to chronicle the spread of the gospel. So Jesus, he, he gave his disciples a commission in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that's what we've seen happen. The gospel has gone out from Jerusalem, and it's going to the ends of the earth. And we're now in Paul's third missionary, missionary journey, something that he's kind of wrapping up. And Paul, at some point, decides, is resolved in his spirit to return back to Jerusalem. So in, in the passage we looked at last week, we, we read this in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. And so that's the, the course that our text actually takes this morning. Now this section in, in Acts is structured in a, a pretty clear way. Luke will have a travelogue section, and then he'll have a teaching section. And then he'll have a travelogue section, and then a teaching section. And so that's actually what we get in our text this morning. So verses 1 to 6 are a travelogue. Verses 7 to 12, we see teaching from Paul. Verses 13 to 16, more travelogue. And verses 17 to 38 more teaching from the Apostle Paul. So, all of this makes up something of Paul's farewell tour. And that pattern actually extends beyond Acts chapter 20. It goes into 21 as well. But in, in these chapters, we get this sense that Paul is deliberately on the move from place to place. And as he goes, he's ministering to the people of God, and he's preparing ministers to care for the people of God when he's gone. Uh, now that Paul and all of the apostles are gone, what does it mean for us? What does this text teach us? 
It teaches us that carrying forward the mission of Jesus requires us to be devoted to encouraging disciples, delighted in Jesus' resurrection power, determined to finish the task, and diligent in shepherding the flock. And this can only be done as we depend upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's grace for this. That's the main lesson that we see in our text. And I think you've got uh, an outline there in your bulletin that has that main idea there and the four points that flow out from it. Let's begin with our first point, where we learn that the mission of Jesus requires that we be devoted to encouraging disciples. Devoted to encouraging disciples. Follow along as I read from Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Well, you can obviously see that this is travelogue, right? Luke is chronicling where Paul is going from place to place and who he's going with. But notice in verse 1 that Paul uh, in, leaves Ephesus, and he makes a circuitous journey, really, to Troas there in verse 6. And along the way, I hope you noticed that we saw him encouraging disciples. So you see that there in, in verse 1, right? He encouraged them, as he said, farewell, departed from Macedonia. And then we get there again in verse 2. He gave them much encouragement. Now, what we're about to see is that the form that that encouragement takes place is teaching. So that's what he's going to do in Troas. He's going to encourage those disciples, and he's going to, to teach them. But this is also coming on the heels of this riot in Ephesus. So these disciples in Ephesus need to be encouraged. They're, they're potentially afraid as the whole city was in an uproar, expressing their hostility against the Lord Jesus Christ. And that can cause a great many disciples to be afraid. So Paul encourages them before he leaves. An important aspect for him to do. Notice we, we have this uh, encouragement. He's, he gets on the road. He makes his way to Greece. He's three months there. And then he's getting ready to set sail. And this plot uh, comes about by the Jews. They're seeking to kill him. Now, this should immediately jump into our minds the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, like the Lord Jesus, has gotten on the road. In fact, in, in Luke's gospel, and I think it's in chapter 9, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem as though he's determined to go there and to die. And that's what Paul is. Paul is resolved in his spirit, as we saw in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. He's going to Jerusalem, and yet he's going to be hounded by the Jews all along the way. So Paul, in his final steps throughout the rest of the book of Acts, is in some ways going to mirror the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is making his way, following the lead of the Holy Spirit, and not diverting from that path. And yet, yet he, he wisely makes a decision not to go ahead and get on that boat, for potential death awaits him. But he decides to travel through Macedonia. As he goes back through there, we can expect that he encouraged the churches that he met with there. But then why does Paul, uh, Luke give us this list of companions? All right, we, we get Paul's travels. We're, we're watching him and his ministry along the way. But, but why do we get this list of men? Why do we get where they're from? 
What does that matter? We're, we're told that they're from Berea, Thessalonica, and Derbe, and the broader regions of Asia. How does this c- comport with the book of Acts and what Luke is trying to communicate? Well, it's really quite simple. It's a profound point. We're saying that the gospel has grown and that it's spreading, right? Churches are being established in all of these places. Paul has been teaching and preaching there. And, and yes, the church and, and the gospel is reaching the ends of the earth. And here are these men who are being prepared by Paul to continue the message on as he prepares to leave. So Luke is giving us wonderful, profound point that, that they are going to pick up the task where Paul leaves off and that churches are thriving and growing in those places. And I think we need to recognize, too, that in, in the course of this mission, at least two things are required. Evangelism is certainly required. Evangelism sparks the church and its life. And yet, encouragement is also necessary to sustain the church. And it's actually in that environment of encouragement where men are raised up to go and be evangelists and still yet continue on the work of the ministry and encourage the church. So this is a a wonderful depiction of how the gospel is growing throughout Luke's account. And I think there's application for us here too, right? We need to be busy, of course, in the work of our evangelism. But we also need to be dedicated to encouraging one another. So so we we get together after the church. We go over to each other's homes. We get together for a cup of coffee throughout the week, whatnot. We get together. We listen to one another. We love one another. We encourage one another from the word of God. This is all important for the sustenance and the vibrance of the church itself. And we ought to be devoted to encouraging the disciples. That's what we see. We see Paul encouraging the disciples all along his journey. And this encouragement, as I said, we get a snapshot of what it looks like there in verses 7 to 12. Paul, he left the believers in, in where he was, and he traveled on to Troas. And here we're going to find that Paul leaves those believers delighted in Jesus' resurrection power. Indeed, this is what we should be delighted in, too. Jesus still raises the dead in the course of gospel preaching and celebrating his ordinances. See if you can spot how this seriously long sermon leads to a group of Christians delighting in Jesus' power. Follow along as I read verses 7 to 12. There in Acts 20. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Well, that phrase, not a little comforted, actually means that they were greatly comforted. It's kind of Luke's reverse way of underscoring the point that the congregation was just greatly encouraged by the ministry that Paul had with them. And they were delighted, of course, that Jesus had displayed his power through the apostle Paul to restore Eutychus back to life. Notice, though, where this account begins. It begins there in verse 7 with God's people gathering on the Lord's day. Did you notice that? And did you notice what they gathered to do? They gathered to hear God's word 
and to celebrate God's ordinances, the very thing that we have gathered together today to do. So they, they heard God's word, they heard this sermon from Paul, and they, they broke bread. They probably took the Lord's Supper together. Now this, this phrase, the first day of the week, it's actually in, in all four of the Gospels, and it's connected to Jesus' resurrection. So before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath. But then, when God sent His Son, and Jesus gave His life on the cross, and was raised from the grave on the third day, He was actually raised on the first day of the week. And so, shortly after Jesus' resurrection and the church gets going in the book of Acts, they start gathering together on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. So this is why we we meet. We're following the pattern of the early Christians to gather together to hear God's word and to celebrate God's ordinances. And this should be a pattern for our lives going forward. So I think that unless you are serving your employer or unless you are sick, you should be with God's people on the Lord's Day, gathered for worship. Uh, So I want to encourage you to choose the worship of Christ over everything else. Uh, choose, Choose the worship of Christ over the wealth of the world. Choose the worship of Christ over the welcome of your teammates. Choose uh, the worship of Christ over the warmth of your blankets. Turn up and gather with God's people and rejoice in His resurrection power. That's what we see these brothers and sisters doing even when they were met with a wonderfully long sermon from the Apostle Paul. And you might say, now Mike, your sermons are long. And I would just point out to you here, yes, but Paul's are longer still. So... He, he, he had them going for a very long time. You notice that how Luke describes it, right? That the lamps are lit, so we're probably looking at an evening setting that's going on here. Early Christians would meet either early in the morning or, or, or late in the evening on, on the Lord's Day. And so here this seems to be an evening setting for uh, these brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if they, they start sometime, you know, just after dinner, uh, and Paul prolongs his speech until midnight, that's at least three hours. Uh, and then, of course, you see there verse 9, Paul talked longer still. Uh, He he kept going. And then we have this dramatic event. We're told of Eutychus, this boy. Uh, If you skip down to verse 12, you'll see they refer to him as the youth. That word boy uh, probably means uh, a a lad who's not yet the age of puberty. So a young boy is there and he uh, sinks into a deep sleep. And the, the language is somewhat comical. It's like it's setting in upon him and he can't resist it. Maybe you've had that feeling gathering with God's people before, where it's just setting in upon you and you're struggling to resist it. We'll keep fighting. That's all I have to say. Because the consequences could be dire. Dozing could lead to dying. Uh, And that's what's happened here. And Eutychus, he's overcome by sleep. He falls out of this window and he died. Now, some people uh, wonder whether or not he really died. And I think Luke is emphatically communicating that, yes, he, he did in fact die. Because the way he describes Paul's actions, he sets them in the, the, the mantle of the prophets who have gone before him. So Elijah and Elisha both restored the life of children as they laid their bodies across these children. And that's what we see Paul doing. He's bending over this boy and he's bringing him back to life through Jesus' sovereign power. And this shows us, this shows us that Paul is an authorized apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus has commissioned him, and he's displaying this power through him. Now, if you fall asleep in church and something dramatic happens, you should not expect your pastors to be able to bring you back to life like this. This is a unique sign of the apostles. It's something that, that Jesus is working in them. I also think not only in casting Paul in the vein of an Old Testament prophet doing the same deed and action that they did, 
uh, to bring the boy back to life. In his very words, where he says, do not be alarmed for his life and in him, is in him, it, it sounds like the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? Right? When, when Jesus turns up to a scene and a child is dead, he, he, walks out, uh, he walks up to the house and there are weepers and mourners there. And he says, you know, do not weep uh, for, for the child is alive. And, and they laugh at the Lord Jesus. What we need to understand is happening in this statement from Paul is that it's a, it's a prophetic statement. It's a, it's a preparatory statement. It's a performative statement where God attends to it. And he honors that word of, of promise from the Paul and shows Jesus power. And Paul is confident that the boy will come back to life, uh, just like Jesus was in, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 8, verse 42. Now, brothers and sisters, think about how this would have profoundly encouraged that congregation, right? Here is Paul preaching seemingly all night long about Jesus, his resurrection and saving power, and then there is a deed, a miraculous, death-defying deed that's accompanying to it from the Lord to say, dear church, your faith is well-founded to believe in the risen Lord Jesus. Keep believing in him. Uh, this miracle would have certainly encouraged the believers in Troas to know the things that they believe about Jesus are real. And that they should persevere in the faith. They've rejoiced in Jesus' power to save, and they should keep rejoicing in Jesus' power to save. And what's amazing, if you, if you just kind of read the account straightforwardly, you see that Luke sends Paul right back up the stairs to pick up his conversation. Uh, as he says there, he converses with them a long while until daybreak. And it's really kind of only after Paul's departure that we're relieved to find out, and it's confirmed, that the boy really is alive. In verse 12 right there, we're told that they took the youth away alive. I mentioned that this was a, a young boy, probably below the age of puberty, uh, there's a, a funny comment by an older commentator who talks about how this is very natural. Uh, how boys love to climb much to the grief of their parents. Uh, and th that's what's happened here. He's climbed up in this windowsill. And yet, the Lord was pleased to save him and encourage and strengthen that, chur that church. And, and notice, there's, there's, there's lots of application here for us in this scene. Notice that there were children in church. There were children in church. So... Brothers and sisters, moms and dads, I recognize that it's sometimes difficult to have your children in church with you. Sometimes you feel like you are doing more behavior management than you are beholding the mercy of God. So, sometimes it's difficult. But dads and moms, I want to encourage you to bring your children to worship. Put them in the way of gospel preaching and teaching and, and of the visible signs and the ordinances that God has ordained to us to see the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, persevere in, in this good work. Um, th there's a, a book on the book note that we have called Let the Children Worship. It's got some practical tips and instructions on maybe how to care for your kids in the midst of the service. I encourage you to potentially read that. It's not going to be the solution to all of the struggles and challenges. Much of this you're just going to have to discipline and disciple your kids in. But it's important for you to show your children that the most important thing is the glory of God and you want to give Him the worship that's due to His name. And children... Uh, let me encourage you, children, let me encourage you to give yourself to the reading, the hearing, and the singing, and the praising of God here in worship. In, in this time, God is doing something remarkable. When we read His Word, God is speaking. We're hearing the voice of God in the Scriptures of God. And that is such a great privilege to hear a word of love from the God who made you and called you into even this church family. He's placed you here to be here and hear of his goodness and grace. So give, give yourself 
to hearing God. For those of you who are, are singles or who, who don't have kids, let, let me encourage you to find a family, uh, uh, maybe a mom and a dad who are outnumbered. Maybe uh, you can bless them, right? They have moved from one-on-one to zone defense to prevent, and you can see that they're hardly preventing anything. Well, you can bless them by coming alongside them, maybe sitting in their row and helping them and help their kids uh, learn what it looks like to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Many years ago, when my kids were younger, we had a dear sister in Christ who would sit in the the pew with us. Uh, Her name was Miss Stephanie, and she would feed mints to my kids to like get them to sit still uh, for just, okay, if you finished it, you got to suck on it, not chew it. We got to finish it. All right. And I'll give you another one to help them make it through. And so we affectionately refer to her as mint Stephanie. Um, and, and you, you can bless your brothers and sisters in Christ in that way. We, we're, we're a family. That's how the scriptures describe the church of the living God. And we should, we should act like it and encourage one another and help one another. And I, and I love to see how you do that even already. So let me encourage you to keep going in that way. You know, Eutychus' name, I don't know if you've studied his name before, it means lucky or fortunate, which is striking, isn't it? Uh, Indeed, he was fortunate that Jesus' power to bring the dead back to life is no myth, but true might. He was not lucky. He was loved, right? He was restored, and the people of God at Troas were led not only to receive much comfort and encouragement, but to delight in Jesus' power to save. Paul's resuscitation of Eutychus demonstrated Jesus' power to save sinners through the preached word. It was a sign of confirmation to that congregation that she should continue to delight in and declare Jesus' power to save. And we ought to give ourselves to this week in and week out. We gather here, brothers and sisters, pray that Jesus would raise the spiritually dead who are among us. Pray for him to work mightily in that way, to perform a miracle just like we see here. Raising the spiritually dead. Well, to carry forward the mission of Jesus, we need to be devoted to encouraging disciples. We need to be delighting in Jesus' resurrection power. His power to save. And we need to be determined to finish the task. That's our our third point. It's what we discover in verses 13 to 16. Follow along as I read verses 13 to 16 of Acts chapter 20. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos. Intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. When he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if at all possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now we won't linger long here, but, but I do want to point out to you all of the kind of intentional language that shows Paul's determination to make it to Jerusalem. Right, you see there in verse uh, 13 especially, we're told that Paul, he made travel arrangements. In verse 16, we're, we're told that Paul decided to sail past Ephesus because he wanted to be at Jerusalem by Pentecost. We're told that he was hastening there. Uh, Paul's deliberate, he's determined. And he does not delay. But not only that, alongside that, Luke pairs this kind of day-by-day language, doesn't he? Uh, he? He gives us these time stamps, as it were, that Paul's going various places. He tells us in verse 15 about the following day, the next day, and the day after that. This is, of course, one of those travelogue sections that I mentioned earlier. And again, the Holy Spirit has laid it upon Paul's heart to go to Jerusalem. 
Uh, It's very possible that what's driving Paul is, one, the Holy Spirit, of course, but two, this task that he's set aside to take a collection from the Gentile Christians, um, from the Gentile world that he's been evangelizing, to those poor Jewish Christians who were suffering in Jerusalem. And, And what a testimony to God's power and to Jesus' unifying work in his church that would have been to see these Gentile Christians send their resources, their financial resources, to the church in Jerusalem. That would have been a wonderful testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is perhaps one of the things that is on Paul's heart as he's seeking to get to Jerusalem. But Paul has a plan, right? He's resolved in his spirit. And this same kind of commitment that Paul has made to, to, to make it to Jerusalem is really the same kind of commitment that we should have to be determined to share Christ with the people and in the places that Jesus plants us. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to, to make plans to share the gospel with your, your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends. Uh, make plans and don't delay in executing them. H- hasten to maybe have them over for dinner or get a cup of coffee with them or, or gra- grab lunch with them. Make plans and, and be determined to carry forward the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God, just like the Apostle Paul. Well, we've seen that that's what the mission takes from us. It takes us being devoted to encouraging disciples, delighted in Jesus' resurrection power, and determined to finish the task. Let's turn now and consider our fourth point. And here we're looking at the point, be diligent and dependent upon God. Paul is going to exhort the Ephesian elders to be diligent in shepherding the flock. And he's going to tell them that the only way that they can serve in this ministry is to depend upon God. And so we find this. Let's read Uh, We'll read it kind of chunk by chunk. Let's read verses 17 to 27. Follow along now as I read. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's pause there. You'll you'll notice uh, in verse 17, and really uh, verses we read before too, that Paul, he wanted to to pass by Ephesus. He didn't want to get uh, stuck there and minister to that congregation. He just wanted to briefly minister to the elders. And so he, he calls them over, the elders of this church in Ephesus. And we should think about who these men are, who these elders are. Uh, notice it's there in the plural. So there's multiple elders here. So the congregation in Ephesus had multiple men serving as leaders of the church. 
And throughout this farewell speech from the Apostle Paul, these men are called elders there in verse 17. Skip down, you'll see that they're called there in verse 28. You see what they're called there? They're called overseers, which is also where we get our word for bishop. Um, and then in verse 28 as well, there's this phrase, Paul exhorts them to care for the church of God. Some of your translations uh, might have the word shepherd right there where it says to care for. He exhorts them to shepherd the church of God. That word shepherd is really where we get our word for pastor. So these titles and terms recognize they're addressing the same men, the entire same group of men. So an elder is a bishop, is an overseer, is a pastor, is a shepherd. That's who these men are. And so Paul, he wants to address these men. This is a farewell speech. Uh, essentially, he addresses his ministry and their ministry and God's ministry. Now, those are all a bit intertwined, but we're going to try and, and pull them apart in that way. To look at what Paul's ministry looked like, what Paul will exhort them, how they should minister, and then reflecting upon the ministry that God will have to them as they carry out their office. Uh, so Paul is saying, basically, you know what I do in ministry. Here's what you should do in ministry. And here's what God will do in the course of your ministry. Well, we just read a good chunk of what Paul does there in verses 17 to 25. And about how Paul uh, kind of holds these men accountable for what they know. Right? Paul says, I lived a very transparent life before you. But not only that, Paul tells these men that he humbly trusted the Lord as he ministered to them. Do you see that in verses uh, 18 and 19? Paul talks about how he trusted the Lord. Uh, he served the Lord with all humility. Uh, that word Lord and that word service, they have connotations of a master-slave relationship, actually. So what Paul is saying is that he, he humbly submitted to the Lord's providence for him wherever he was. He trusted the Lord and he obeyed the Lord. So Paul, he trusted the Lord really to establish his witness. Uh, Paul trusted the Lord with his life too, didn't he? Do you see that there in verses really 22 to 25? He's constrained by the Spirit. He's compelled and he's not resisting the Spirit. He's going to Jerusalem. He doesn't know precisely what's going to happen there. But the Holy Spirit has been making clear to him personally and internally in every city that he goes to that he is going to face imprisonment and afflictions. But notice the remarkable verse 24. Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Paul, he doesn't view his life as so valuable that he has to protect it at all costs. How tempted we are to protect our lives at all costs. Not so for Paul. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to spend it. He was willing to not hold anything back, but to hand it all over to the Lord. He, he trusted the Lord to spend his life. And he was trusting that God would work through him. He was ready to, in the words of that famous hymn, he was ready to let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Yes, all for the ministry that God has given him. He won't hold anything back. Paul trusted the Lord to establish his witness. Right? He humbly served. He wasn't boasting and building himself up so people would be drawn to him. No, he humbly served the Lord. He trusted his witness to the Lord. He trusted the Lord with his life. He trusted the Lord with his provision too. He knew that God had gave him hands to work with. And so he worked with them there in Ephesus. And they saw it. Uh, you skip down to, uh, to really verses 33 to 35. He talks about how he didn't covet anyone's gold or silver. But he worked with his hands. He ministered to his own necessities. He trusted the Lord to provide through him. Whether that be through him working through his hands. Or believers bringing gifts to supply for him. Uh, to, to carry on in ministry. He trusted the Lord with provision. He humbly served. 
He gave himself. So his ministry was marked by transparency. His life was open to them all. It was marked by trust. It was also marked by tears. Did you see that in verse 19? See, in verse 19, he says they're serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. And then skip down to verse 31. You see what Paul says there? He says that for three years he did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Paul was earnest in ministry. I think we lose a lot of that today. An an earnestness, a care, an affection for the soul of the sheep. And I think we see that really here in the Apostle Paul's life. He talks about admonishing them. And that's correcting them. right? But he does it affectionately with tears. I pray that uh, the minister of the elders of this congregation will be marked by a willingness to admonish. And yet with deep affection. Weeping for the well-being of your souls. May it be said that the elders of this church care more about your soul sometimes than you do. May we have such a love for your soul. The ministry of Paul was marked by transparency, trust, tears, and trials. Do you see that? It's marked by trials. Verse 19, he talks about that. Uh, I, I, um, he says, and with trials to me through the plots of the Jews. So again, he's following in the path of the Lord Jesus Christ. He served the Lord with all humility, willing to be stamped however the Lord pleased to stamp him. He's following in the way of Christ. And this is what shepherds endure for the sake of sheep. Brothers, uh, we may be called to endure trials in order to care for the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we may need to endure scorn for the salvation of souls. We may lose our lives. But we must do it for the love of the ones that God loves. That's what Paul was willing to do. His ministry was marked by transparency, trust, tears, trials. And it was also marked by testifying and teaching. Did you see that? Look at verses 20 and 21. There we see this testifying and teaching. Uh, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says three remarkable things in these two verses. He says that Paul taught everything that was profitable. He taught everywhere that it was profitable. He taught everyone who would profit. Right? He taught everything that was profitable. So we cannot skip over portions of God's Word. Right? Pastors have to teach and preach from the whole of God's Word. So, so we're in this series in the book of Acts. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll finish up. And I'll preach through a few Psalms. And then we'll go to the book of Genesis. We'll go to the Old Testament. It's the only book in the Pentateuch that I haven't preached before. So I preached through uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Not Genesis. So we're going to go back there. Make sure we don't miss anything that God has for us. We've got to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Everything in God's word is profitable for all of God's people. But notice in those two verses that Paul taught everywhere it was profitable. He taught in public and he taught from house to house. Uh, So he, he preached publicly. But he also went and ministered the word among God's people. Uh, Some of you have invited us into your homes to minister to God's word to you there. Thank you for that privilege. Some of you uh, still need to let us in. We've we've asked to come in. We we want to come in. We know that you're struggling. We want to meet with you, read God's word with you, and pray with you. You should let us into your life to minister God's word, not only publicly, but from house to house. The Lord has much good for you in his word, much encouragement, much strengthening, much instruction. And Paul, notice that he taught everyone who would profit. He, he talked about Jews and the Greeks. That's kind of everybody else. 
So Paul, he was not ethnocentric, being a Jew himself. He didn't restrict his teaching just to the Jews. No, he, he taught everybody who would listen. And everyone who would listen is welcome to gather with us here for God's worship. This is what we want to do. Paul, he not only taught, he also testified. Do you see there in verse 26? Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. That's a really striking phrase. Because what Paul is saying there is he's like an Old Testament prophet. He's, he's like one of those watchmen described in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 to 9. And that watchman, he would stand up and he's supposed to warn the people of God of danger that's coming. But if that watchman did not warn the people, he would be held responsible and judged by God. But the people, once they were warned by that watchman, they were responsible to respond to that word of warning. And what Paul is saying is, I have discharged my duty. I've warned you of the wrath to come. I've told you of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've taught you everything you need to know for life and godliness. And now I'm handing this over to you, brothers. That's what Paul is saying. He's discharged his duty. He's putting himself under oath, being honest before the Lord. And then look at what Paul says there in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Here it is. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. We already looked at that phrase, uh, everyone with tears. But notice the, the fullness of Paul's teaching, right? Every day, shepherds need to be trying to connect as best as God allows them to, the people of God, every day, checking in on them, making sure they're well, admonishing them with great affection and love. That's how Paul taught. He taught uh, everyone, everywhere, and everything that would profit. But, but what precisely was the content of Paul's teaching and testifying? Well, it was everything that was profitable, we saw there. Uh, verse 21 tells us more specifically, do you see it there? He taught repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thought about this earlier when we brought out that confession of faith that we confessed together from our church's statement of faith. The thing about these phrases that Paul has here, repentance toward God, right? So when we're sinning, we're heading in a particular direction. And what repentance is, is turning away from that sin and turning to God. And trusting in Him. And what do we do? We turn to God in faith. Trusting the Savior that He's given to us. So it's repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection uh, conquered sin and death and fully paid for all of our sins. So that we might be welcomed in God's sight. And Paul proclaimed repentance. The people actually had sins. Sins they needed to turn away from. And sins they need to turn away from in order to turn to God toward. This is what we must do. So Paul taught repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, living under Jesus' lordship, following the way of the master. But then notice in verse 24 what Paul says there. Paul testified to the gospel of the grace of God. That's an interesting phrase. I think it's maybe only the, the uh, place in the New Testament that's actually put exactly like this. The gospel, the good news, the euangelion, good proclamation of the grace of God. So what, what is grace? Well, we talk about it a lot. Sometimes people name their churches after grace. What is grace? We need to recognize that grace is God's unearned favor. Remember that salvation is a gift that's given, not a gift that's earned. You're, you're purchasing something in that kind of transaction. No, no. Salvation is a gift that's given. It's not of works so that no man can boast. And what has God given? What has He graciously given? Beloved, He's given His one and only Son. 
God so loved the world, right, that he gave his one and only son. This is what you need to recognize about salvation. It's nothing that you do, but everything that God has done in Jesus Christ that accomplishes your salvation. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you're contemplating, you know, I I need to go back to church. I need to to think about following the Lord. I need to do this, this, and that. Well, Well, maybe, but first and foremost, you need to accept the gift that God has given in His Son. He's given you the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus who lived a sinless life, unlike you and me and everyone here this morning, like anyone else in the world. Jesus lived a sinless life. He lived an obedient life unto God the Father, and yet he laid down his life on the cross. On the cross, he was bearing in his body on the tree all the sins and the punishment due to them, for all of those who had ever turned from their sin and placed their faith in him. So Jesus, the Bible teaches us, was paid our wages in his death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We all have worked in sin, and we deserve to be paid eternal death. But instead, the Lord Jesus on the cross was paid our wages for our working in sin. Jesus died on the cross, and three days later, God raised him from the dead, vindicating and proving us, proving to us all that his life and death was acceptable in God's sight. That as we come to him, as we embrace him in faith, we too will have eternal life. We will be resurrected from our graves on the last day. Friend, God calls you today. He commands you today to repent, to turn away from your sin, and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that today and receive this gospel of grace, not what you have done, but what Jesus has done for you. This is what Paul proclaimed. And as we said in verse 27, he also proclaimed the whole counsel of God. And in verse 25, I skipped over that, but he proclaimed the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus is a king. And he has a right to rule over us. He is our Lord and Master. And we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are citizens and subjects of the King. And we are commissioned, as Paul tells us, as ambassadors to make God's appeal to others on behalf of God. To proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come into this kingdom, and this kingdom is yet still coming. Lord willing, when Jesus returns, he will consummate his kingdom and bring it to a glorious end. But we, in our lives today demonstrate that we live under the rule of the king by hearing and heeding the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God. Paul, he was diligent to trust the Lord, to minister with tears, to persevere through trials, to testify and to teach. We've seen the ministry that Paul has given himself to, and now we turn to see the ministry that the elders of Ephesus should give themselves to. Uh, Read Acts chapter twenty. Verses 28 to 31. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of God, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Well, here we see the ministry uh, that the Ephesian elders are supposed to have, and indeed all elders in the churches of God. Now, on the one hand, what Paul says first there in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. That's the first instruction Paul gives them. 
In reality, there's a certain sense in which Paul has been saying throughout his whole speech, pay careful attention to my ministry, right? Paul says, you know how I have lived. So these elders have also needs to trust the Lord with their reputations, trust the Lord with their futures, uh, care for God's people with tears, endure trials and testify and teach faithfully. We need to be able to say, brothers, we, we need to be able to say, I am innocent of the blood of all, like Paul said there. Paul has put these elders on alert. And he's given them a therefore in verse 27. He gives them another one in verse 31. And in between, he tells them to pay careful attention to several things. First, to their own souls. I mean, is it not striking that the very first thing that Paul says to these brothers in verse 28 is pay careful attention to yourselves? How can you shepherd God's flock if you cannot shepherd your own soul? How can you keep watch over your God's flock and their wanderings if you cannot watch and be attentive to the own, your own wanderings of heart? Right? So fellow elders, brothers, we must keep watch over our life and doctrine. We must, have, we must have earnest, sweet, and true communion with Christ if we are to lead the people of God to have the same. We must watch the wanderings of our hearts and rein them in before we are led astray. How can we pay careful attention to other souls if we're careless with our own? Brothers, read your Bible and pray every day. That's something that every Christian should do. But those who are especially called to serve as elders must be diligent to watch their souls in this way. We must work the word into our hearts if we are to work it into the hearts of others. We must pay careful attention to our souls. Now, brothers, uh, you know in our elders' meetings that we spend a lot of time reading the Bible and then talking about how we can pray for one another and then praying for one another. So much so that it feels like we get very little business done. But that business, I actually think, is perhaps most important for us. If we are to lead God's flock well, to love one another's souls well, to help watch each other's souls well, to care for one another well. So brothers, let's give ourselves to these things. Bible reading and prayer in our elders' meetings. Notice in verse 28, Paul also calls the elders of Ephesus. He tells them that they must pay careful attention to all the flock. We've got to watch over the sheep. We've got to watch over all of the sheep. Not just the ones who are easiest to watch but those who are wandering as well. Uh, not just those who draw near, but those who are distant too. But we need to watch over them and to keep them wandering from danger. And it's not by accident that Paul includes that word all. All elders are responsible for all the flock. It's not like Paul divides them up alphabetically. Okay, A to L here. You guys are going to have this section of the congregation, uh, you know, M to whatever. You guys have that. No, they're all responsible to care for all of the flock. And it's a weighty task to care for all the flock. And Paul, he tells them why. Why they need to discharge this duty. Do you see it there? We can see why they need to discharge this duty in the words of, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Striking. That, that's, that's a why. These men are to discharge their duties because the Holy Spirit has raised them up. Yes, it's true that a congregation like ours votes to formally recognize an elder, but first and foremost, the Holy Spirit sets men apart to serve the people of God. And you've been called to this task, given a desire in your heart, perhaps by the Holy Spirit, and you need to carry out that task as one charged, not only by the congregation, but also by the Holy Spirit to care, carry out this oversight. Now, where? Where do these, these men discharge their duties? They do it among the church of God. Do you see that there? 
Specifically, these men are going to do it in Ephesus. They're not going to do it in Miletus. They're not going to do it in Troas. These men are going to go back to Ephesus, and they're going to carry out their labors there. So elders, though uh, impelled by the Holy Spirit and confirmed by a local church to serve as elders there, uh, they're elders there in that church. So let's say an elder of ours goes on vacation, right? And he goes to Slick Lizard Baptist Church in Totesuck, Arkansas. Not a real church, but a real place. Uh, and let's say he turns up there, he's on vacation, because he's, he's not vacationing from being a Christian. He goes to church, he's vacationing from work, right? He goes there, he's not an elder there. He's, he's not responsible to care for the souls of men and women there. He's responsible to care for the souls of brothers and sisters here. And that's why your elders need to have interaction with you, right? We need to be among the sheep that God has called us to lead. So uh, elders care for the flock in a local setting. And then at the end of verse 28, Paul gives us another reason why elders need to discharge their duties. You see it? God obtained. He purchased. He redeemed his sheep with his own blood. God has established elders, and he's called them to be diligent in watching over the flock because the sheep are precious to him. He went to great lengths to purchase the sheep. And when Paul explains that God obtained them with his own blood, he he means that he supplied it. He, He supplied the blood that was necessary in the sacrifice to cover and wash away their sins. And that... He did so in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So so God the Father does not have a body like men. But the second person of the triune Godhead, the eternal Son, took flesh to himself. And he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Think for a minute of how precious this purchase of God was. I mean, listen, listen to Mr. Spurgeon on this matter. How then could God give the Son to die? He being one with himself. Shall any man explain it? Or if he could explain the mystery, can he tell us what it costs the father to give his son? Can a mother tell us how it pains her heart to part with her child? Can any father tell us the anguish of losing his only begotten? What must it be to give up your well-beloved son to be despised and spit upon, maltreated and murdered? No, you do not know what it is. And therefore you cannot tell what it is. You that have been bereaved of your dearest, you know the pang which tears the heart, but you cannot express the loss to others. Your grief is inexpressible. Who shall tell the Father and what the Father felt when he did, as it were, the Son of God cast aside the well-beloved to the dogs by sending him among the wicked husbandmen who say, this is their heir, let us kill them. Who shall tell what the Eternal felt when the brightness of His glory, the express image of His Son, was bound like a felon, accused like a criminal, mocked as an imposter, and scourged as a transgressor, rejected as vile, and slain as worthy of death, to see His well-beloved hung up like a thief and made to bear infinite agony? What would the Father have thought of this? True, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He hath put Him to grief. But not without great self-denial on the part of the great father. All of the agony of Abraham, when he unsheathed the knife to slay his son, was but a faint type of what it cost the father when he gave his only begotten, that he might die for us. Brothers, we 
we barely have words to express how precious the people of God are to the Father. And if they are precious to Him, then our shepherding needs to reflect that care for them. They must be precious to us. Otherwise, we will step on them and use them for our positioning and pride and vainglory. We are mere under-shepherds of the great shepherd of the sheep. We must always remember that they belong to Him. We must care for them as God would care for them. They are precious to Him. We are merely standing in His stead. And let me encourage you, if you're here this morning, and you're a sheep of God, and you're not a member of a flock, if you're not a member of a local church, let me ask you, do you want someone watching over your soul? Don't, don't, you, don't you need a shepherd? You know, sometimes um, preachers will use this analogy of sheep. In the New Testament, Jesus refers to Christians as sheep. Paul does as well. And they'll point out that sheep are dumb creatures. They're, they're dumb animals. And then they'll use it kind of in a backhanded way to say that sometimes as Christians we're dumb. Which is true. But I don't think that's ultimately and finally what Paul or Jesus are after. I think they mean in that image of a sheep to tell us that sheep are vulnerable. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're vulnerable when we're out on our own. And we need shepherds to watch over us. So find a loving shepherd. Find loving shepherds, plural. Find a congregation who has elders who can take care of your soul. And don't pridefully think that you can shepherd yourself on your own. Because there are dangers out there. You see them in verses 29 and 30. There are dangers without and within. Pay careful attention to false teaching, Paul effectively says. We see the dangers without in verse 29 when he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. See, elders need to defend the sheep and drive away the wolves because they will not spare the flock. But then there are also dangers within. You see that in verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. Notice that. That's a mark of false teaching. Not a drawing near to the Lord, but a drawing disciples to themselves. Man using men and women to stand himself up higher and higher in the steam of the world. That's a mark of false teaching. So brothers, it's appropriate that in our elders meetings as well, we have service reviews to, to watch out for the teaching of the congregation, to lovingly watch over teaching, correcting me, uh, uh, us correcting one another when we, we uh, speak wrongly or improperly or in error, uh, lovingly correcting one another. This is important for the health of the flock and for our own souls as well. This is the work that elders are to diligently do. Pay careful attention to Paul's model. Pay careful attention to our own souls. Pay careful attention to all of God's sheep and the potential for false teaching. How can any man expect to bear up under such a weight? Who is sufficient for these things? No one. No one is. And that is why we need the ministry of God. Listen closely to Acts chapter 20, verses 32 to 38. Having brought these men face to face with their ministry, Paul reassures them with the truth that God will minister to them as they minister to his people. Acts chapter 20, verses 32 to 35. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's gold or silver apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, 
we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see those words in verse 32, and now I commend you to God. Uh, he is placing these, mans, these men sorry, into God's hands. Right? He's placing them into the cable, hands of God to care for them, to help them in the course of this task. And in fact, what Paul is doing here is actually what Jesus did on the cross. You remember what Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, or commit my spirit? That's what Paul is doing here. He's commending, giving these men over to the Lord. He's placing them in God's hands. And he's commending them to God and, did you notice, to the word of his grace. The word that these elders are to preach to the sheep is a word of grace and favor from God. It is a word that forgives faults and failings. How shepherds and elders need a word of grace when their faults and failings are exposed. What is more, this word will build elders up. Brothers, you need wisdom on how to care for a couple or a Christian who's in, in, in trouble. Uh, this word can build you up for that task. It's sufficient for the work that God has called us to undertake. If you're looking for the resources that you need in the office of elder, they're right here in God's word with the help of his Holy Spirit. Where we find his grace proclaimed and promised. It's a grace that builds us up, that fits us for the task, and fills us with strength to care for God's flock. And Paul assures these brothers too that this word of grace promises an inheritance among the saints. The rewards of God's people are in glory. And elders, the elders of God's flock, need to always keep glory in view. We are preparing the people of God for glory, even as God is preparing to bring us to glory. What an important perspective to impart while Paul prepares to part. Keep your eyes fixed on glory, brothers. That's where you're headed. That's what you'll be rewarded with. There's blessing in giving yourself to this labor. That's why Paul quotes the Lord Jesus. Elders are asked to give much. But as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this uh, quip from the Lord Jesus is not found anywhere word for word in the Gospels. We may have some allusions to it. Maybe Jesus said it to Paul on the road to Damascus. Or, or it's a common saying that the Lord Jesus' the disciples carried on with them as they went. Maybe it's the sum of kind of Jesus' teaching that he gave his life. Right? That's, that's what effect this saying is communicating. That elders, brothers... Give your lives. Don't, don't, don't stand there and accumulate possessions and wealth and people to yourself. No, give yourself and be spent for the glory of God. There is greater blessing in spending your life for others rather than accumulating material possessions for yourself. And here's, of course, a warning, too, to elders. Not to be greedy for dishonest gain, but to work diligently with our hands. And like Paul, let goods and kindred go. And this remark from Paul would further underscore their need for dependence upon God and the work that he's setting before them, the task of shepherding. Christ's church, it's downright weighty. The diligence required is demanding. And so we must depend upon God, who gives yet more grace. And as we prepare to conclude, read the, the final words of the chapter. Read Acts chapter 20, verses 36 to 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. They pray, they cry, and they watch Paul depart. What a sweet scene. What a wonderful farewell tour. He's equipped them to carry on the mission of Jesus, isn't he? 
is filled with love and joy and sorrow. Indeed, when Christians part, it can often rend the heart. As one of our elders is wants to say, if you don't cry when you say goodbye, you're doing it wrong. Right? Those who love from the depths will feel it from the depths when it comes time to depart. I began this sermon by asking, what is the goal of a farewell tour? Athletes and artists may want to connect and say thanks one last time, but that wasn't Paul's goal. He prepared these men and the churches he was leaving behind for faithful ministry among God's flock. He's committed these men to God and to the word of his grace. And my prayer is that this word we've heard together this morning would stir us up to give ourselves to faithful ministry among God's people. May we be devoted to encouraging Jesus' sheep. Maybe there's someone here this morning you need to say an encouraging word to and build them up because this week was rough. The rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and life was hard. Find another brother or sister to build up this morning. May we delight in Jesus' resurrection power. Let us remind one another, Jesus' resurrection from the dead signals the end of death's cruel reign. And we can trust him. May we be determined to finish the task that Jesus has set before us. May we be diligent in the work. But above all, may we depend upon God so that all glory and honor goes to him. Let's pray and ask for his grace now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for Acts chapter 20. Uh, this very challenging word to us. Father, we are grateful to see that the mission of Jesus continues and it goes on in the strength and power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray and ask for the grace to encourage and build our fellow brothers and sisters up in love. Father, we pray and ask that you would give us a genuine and true delight in the Lord Jesus Christ and his great power. Father, help the weak, we pray and ask. Father, we ask that you would cause us to be rededicated to Jesus' mission, making him known. And we ask particularly for elders who are here this morning or elders that you intend to raise up among us. We pray and ask that you would give us a humble dependence upon you as we seek to carry out that calling. Father, would you impart the Holy Spirit to us and strengthen us for the work so that you are glorified, so that your sheep are cared for as precious to you. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.